Thanks for checking out this sermon from Christ the King in Carrollton, Georgia, where our goal is to glorify God by making, training, and sending disciples to engage our neighbors and the nations with the gospel of Jesus. If you want to learn more about us, you can find us online at ctkcarrollton.com, or better yet, join us on a Sunday in Carrollton. That would be super helpful or turn on to Genesis 38, whatever works best for you. Um, while you do that, I want to say this. I want to say that it's been a um, it's been a wild week, man. Like it has been a really sweet week and it's been a really challenging week at the same time. You guys are familiar, right? You guys are familiar. You know what that looks like. It's been challenging because there's been, it's just been very busy. Um, and so... Uh, Busy seasons tend to, in some way, translate um, into, into, into challenging seasons. Um, but it has also been a super sweet week of prayer um, for the body of Christ the King. Um, this is a really important season for our church. As we begin to, uh, to work towards the process of assessing elder candidates over the next few weeks. Um, so let me say this kind of off the bat. We um, are in the last day scheduled uh, for someone to be submitted or nominated as an elder candidate. Um, Neil and I over the next few weeks are going to be going um, over these nominations and having conversations as needed um, with those who have been um, nominated before presenting this group of men that will be a part of the process on July 14th. That's an important day to make a note of, okay? July 14th at 6 p.m. we'll be having family meeting here, at which point we will be presenting um, our elder candidates as we prepare to begin that, begin that process. Um, some of you have submitted nomination forms. Many of you have not, if you're a member of Christ the King. And so um, I, I hope um, that if you feel, okay, as though there are men who are qualified to serve in this capacity, um, that you will today take a few minutes this afternoon and fill out one of those forms. This is a part of our work as church members. Um, and, uh, and in addition, prayer, right, over, over, the, next, uh, over the next few weeks uh, as these men are um, or will be presented, that God um, will bring those that are most qualified and most faithful, that he has most qualified and called uh, to serve in this capacity, um, to serve his bride this way. We shouldn't take this lightly. This is a big thing. So I wanted to make sure I took a few minutes here in the beginning just to, to kind of draw that out, to draw attention to that. If you're a member of the body of Christ the King, if you're a covenant member, then uh, please take some opportunity, some time this afternoon to, uh, to, to lean into this process. Uh, I love you and I want to encourage you in this. So um, that being said, let's transition into, into Genesis. Uh, but before we dive in, I want, to, I want to present you with two questions. Uh, that I think are uh, are going to be encouraged naturally by way of the text for you and I to answer. Two questions that I want to present you with that I want to encourage you to consider and to keep in mind as we work through Genesis 38 this morning because I believe that they naturally are brought up over the course of this, uh, of this passage this morning. Uh, the first question is this, how do we respond when confronted with sin? How do we respond when confronted with sin? 
the Bible paints this really clear picture of human condition, okay? And so if you're here this morning and you feel like you kind of have your arms wrapped around the human condition, like in light of your own condition, and yet you've never consulted the Bible, right, in light of what it has to say about the human condition, I think that this is one of the things that, that's going to be drawn out for us this morning. We are rebellious and we are separated by nature. Um, sin is a struggle for all of life, Okay, and if you're a Christian here, right, and you're maybe even a relatively new Christian, that might initially feel super discouraging. Wait a second, like I thought that I was um, that I was leaving this behind and I was venturing into the new, which you are and you have, and the Lord has been super grateful in accomplishing this work in your life. At the same time, however, we must understand that sin is a struggle for the entirety of our lives. There are moments and seasons in which each of us are brought to this realization that things are not as they should be, that we are not as we should be, or we are not where we should be, right? Those three things are constantly being brought to light for us. Our sin is seen for what it is, right? Destructive and dissatisfying. At which point we must ask ourselves, what now? All right, God's word draws out our sin. God's spirit and his conviction draws out our sin. Community with God's people serves to draw out our sin. Why do we constantly encourage the people of God to be a part of Christian community? Well, because it's good for us. It's a, it's a, a primary avenue by which God accomplishes his purpose of transforming us into the image of Jesus, which is going to be a major theme that we see drawn out through Genesis 38. Each of these God uses to accomplish this work of showing us areas of our lives in need of repentance and transformation. So that's the first question. How do we respond when confronted with sin? We get a great picture of this. There's a beautiful illustration of this from Genesis 38. Perhaps you picked up on it uh, in Chelsea's reading in the beginning, which Chelsea, thank you for reading. Incredible job. Uh, if you didn't, we're going to spend some time. We're going to spend some time talking about it. The second question is this, right? How does being confronted with sin shape our understanding of the way that God works in us? How does our being confronted with sin shape the way that we understand God working in us to accomplish what purpose? Right? God working in us to accomplish what purpose? Well, the exaltation of his name, right? Uh, as he distinguishes himself from all of the false dead gods that we tend to crown king, right? Uh, as well as bringing us into the image of his beloved son, right? How does all of this this Work. What is the purpose? Not only eternally, but temporally. There is this moment or season of initial repentance, right? Let's refer to it as first repentance, right? The realization of sin and this, and this turning from and casting upon the finished work of Jesus that transfers our citizenship. We go from being citizens of a broken, fallen, sin-cursed world, right? Very different than the way God initially created it, right? Um, to being citizens of this eternal kingdom with an eternal king that is good and righteous and holy and loves us. But what is God accomplishing in the now? 
Right, we understand this, this transfer of citizenship, but what does that mean for here, now, today? As we come into Genesis 38, we see this passage that seems to, at least at first, interrupt the narrative. I want you to think about where we have been, right? Think about, and I don't mean like way back when, because holy cow, who has time, right, to talk about, to talk about all of that? There's a reason we've been in the book of Genesis for like a year. I don't have time to catch us all the way up, right? But I will say this. Last week, we, we, we painted this picture of a transition in the book of Genesis, right? We've noticed through the book of Genesis a season of transitions, right, in which certain characters seem to occupy this central position. And as we work our way through, there's this transition transition that takes place. Last week, we observed one of those transitions. We're coming into this last major portion of the book of Genesis. Okay, I've illustrated this behind us on as this circle that kind of looks like a Pac-Man with a tongue now that I look at it, right? It's kind of what that looks like. Um, so, so this is an illustration of where we are and what's going on in Genesis. We, 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 uh, we've transitioned right into the life of Joseph. And last week, like I tried to spend a little bit of time in, in laying this out for us, saying, Hey, this is going to be the last major portion of this book that we've spent the better part of the past year unpacking. Only as we come into Genesis 38, what do we find? Well, we, we find this, this story about Judah. Only to next week move back into the narrative of Joseph. And so, so this is kind of what it looks like, right? Like we've got this, this, this circle here. Let me illustrate this a little bit. I'll point out some elements, all right, to try to, to, try to help. Okay, um, this is representative of this story, right? Jo- the Joseph narrative in which we find uh, Joseph as a primary character. And here's its, here's its starting point right here, okay? This is the starting point. This is where we jumped on last week. And we, we, we made up a little bit of ground, right? We got introduced to Joseph. We kind of understand what's going on within his story at this point. Only then, like, we come into Genesis 38, and there's this break. And only to next week, as I've already stated, kind of step back into the narrative and to continue it out, Right? And, and so when you first read through Genesis 38, right, if you weren't here last week and you didn't listen to the podcast, you're like, hey, news to me, like, I'm all good. I have no idea what you're talking about in terms of interruption here, right? But if you were here with us last week or you caught up online, then you would say, how in the world does Genesis 38 fit into this? It seems like the, the narrative is going one direction, that we're understanding flow. We even talked a little bit about where we're ultimately going last week. Only now we've got this, 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 this space in Genesis 38 in which we're shifting characters all together and we see this period of time that passes by. We're all in on the Joseph portion at this point. Only now we see this character shift take place before shifting back to Joseph. That's the illustration here. That's what we're, we're trying to get. That's what we're trying to grasp. The question is this. How in the world does Genesis 38 fit into this narrative? Well, here's a, a little bit of foreshadowing to where we're going, okay? Through this interruption, like this interruption that we see in Genesis 38, we get a glimpse into God's working in different scenes in order to accomplish his mission as these characters come back together later in the story. And so what we look at and we go, okay, this is an interruption. We've got to understand that this, this is just a limited scope, okay? This is like a, like a, like a, like a 10,000 foot view, 
okay? Like we've got, we've got some trees, right? And we've got some buildings and uh, a lake over here, a nice little happy lake, right? Over here. We are getting a glimpse, but this is a much bigger story, right? It's a much bigger story that God is, is telling and is setting us up for as we engage with this very first book of the Bible, and so here's the, here's the 10,000 foot view. What we need to do is we need to, we need to kind of zoom out, right? We're speaking in like multiple dimensions here, right? We need, to, we need to come off and we need to see the 30,000 foot view. Okay, we need, to, we need to see the bigger picture in order that we might understand that God is working in the lives of each one of these characters. Joseph, whom we saw last week, whom we will see next week, as well as Judah, as he prepares to bring them into this collision point later on in the narrative. God is teaching his people through Genesis what it means to trust him. God's teaching his people through the book of Genesis what it means, what it looks like to trust him while displaying his commitment to transform them. Let's be clear. And we're laying a lot of groundwork here in the beginning. And I'm about to just like just pedal to the metal. Like we're really going to get going because we got a lot to, to talk through. But let's be clear as we're seeking to understand sin and its role and what it ultimately does and how God works. Distrust of God, the root of sin, has led humanity into our current predicament. Okay, God says in his word, he tells us that he is sufficient to satisfy. That he knows and wants what is good for us and that our lives will feel fulfilled only when we live out his purpose for creation. And so let's say this, let's apply some of what we're saying immediately, even before we fully jump into Genesis 38. If you're here this morning wrestling with feelings of dissatisfaction, know, number one, that you're probably not alone, okay? If you're wrestling with feelings of, of dissatisfaction, I would submit to you that this is because you are living out of relationship or rhythm with your created purpose, which is what? Relationship with God and his intent for your existence. Are you here this morning and you're wrestling with, with the dissatisfaction? Right? Are you here this morning and you're, and you're just, you're struggling, right? And you've just been struggling for a while. I would submit to you that what we see through Genesis 38, what we see through the redemptive narrative is this call back into God's intended purpose for our existence. Worship of him and enjoyment of our king. As Israel receives uh, and reads this first book of Moses, we're reminded that there are certain watershed moments that lie behind them. What do you mean? Well, they've been delivered from slavery already. You go, wait a second, they're not even in slavery yet. Yeah, I know. That's how it works, right? That's how the Bible works. Like they're, they're, they're having uh, been delivered from slavery. God has judged his enemies and he has met the need of his people in the wilderness. God's power and faithfulness have been marks of the story of his people. Stories like the one that we saw last week, Joseph giving us a glimpse of God's working to accomplish his will through his people. All of this intended to what? We're in the same thread. All of this intended to construct trust and confidence from us of him. What is God accomplishing? What's he doing? What is he desiring for his people here? And what is he desiring for his people here as we read through the book of Genesis? As we read through Genesis 37, 38, 39, the narrative continues. 
He's, he's constructing this platform, right, by which God's people stand firm on the trust that we are able to possess and have because of who God is and what he's done. He's building this for us. So if you're here this morning, you're struggling with distrust, you're going, dude, major shaky sand is where I am right now. Like I'm just like moving about and there's no real intended purpose or mission and I don't know what I'm doing. Good news, okay? Good news because God, through the book of Genesis, is calling his people, right, to this secure posture of trust in him. Am I sounding like a broken record? Are you guys cool? Are we cool just like repeating this over and over again? I hope so because it's what we see, okay? It's kind of where we're going and it is what we see. So let's, let's jump in. All right, here we go. What are we going to see as we work through uh, Genesis 38 this morning? Let's put this up. I think we've got a, a main idea as we do each week, a thesis that we're kind of like that we're working from. When confronted with his sin by Tamar, which is what we see in Genesis 38, Judah responds with repentance, which is actually evidence of God's work in his life as he secures uh, the line of Judah. What we will see is the line of, of Judah in this really unconventional way. So prepare yourself. Maybe you caught it in the reading. You were like, wait a second, say what? <laughs> right? Like, what did Chelsea just say? What did Chelsea just read? Right? Hang on. We're going we're gonna to work through this. Look with me at Genesis 38, beginning in verse 1. Joseph, in this scene... It's not present, right? He's not, he's not in this, this scene as we come into Genesis 38. He is adjusting to life in slavery while his family adjusts to life in his absence. In verse 1, we find Judah traveling down to Adullam to connect with this man named Hurrah. Verse 2, we're jumping in. There, Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. Now, I want us to notice something interesting here in verse 2. There is actually no name given to the Canaanite woman. Because the name of the Canaanite woman is not, is not really like what's important, right? It's not really important to us understanding what God is teaching his people through this story. She, In fact, she's only referred to... Uh, as the daughter of Shua. Now, as we look at verse 2, what we'll notice is that somewhere between verses 2 and 3, things begin to spiral. They begin to spiral as Judah takes a wife from the unbelieving Canaanites. Now, I want us to take just a moment, and I want us to make a note here. I want us to, to note that this call for separation has everything to do with godly and ungodly and nothing to do with ethnic superiority. Okay, there's this, there's this instruction, right? There's this understanding from uh, the people of God that they are to, uh, to submit to this certain order in terms of marital relations, Well, to what purpose? For what purpose? God's desire has always been distinguishing himself and his people from the world, that the nations would see from his people a representation of their God that would serve to draw them 
to himself. This is the way that God works here in Genesis 38, but it's not unique to Genesis 38. We can look in on the story there in verse 2, and we can say, holy cow, things are spiraling, right? Because this is a consistent trait of the Lord observable through both the Old and New Testament. Right, there's this work of distinction that the Lord is drawing out here, even in Genesis 38. There is a, a proper order and submission for Judah in terms of taking for himself a wife. Why? Well, because it all fits within God's purpose. It all fits within God's plan, which is what? Distinguishing himself by way of his people from the nations in order that he might what? Accomplish what? Well, drawing the nations unto himself, Okay. Even here, this has nothing to do with ethnic superiority and everything to do with separating godly and ungodly for the purpose of seeing the ungodly be brought into the family of the godly, okay? We, we see this in Peter's message in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. What does Peter say? He writes this. He says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You see, God's people are to be for the world in our work, play, and relationships. What? Light. Right? We, are to be, we are to be light. We are to be these, these representatives of God to the world. Marriage. For the family of Abraham, as well as the people of Jesus, is a, get this, declaration of praise to God. And one way that his people display him to those around us. Did you catch that? Oh my goodness, that's so important. Right, the, the Christian's approach to marriage marks them as citizens through whom God provides a glimpse of what? Of his kingdom. What we find super interesting is that the kingdom is actually attractive. Right, to, to a world looking in and looking on, the kingdom of God is indeed an attractive place. Why? Well, because in it we find what we all want but cannot seem to grasp. This is the purpose behind the expectation from marriage here in Genesis 38. And if we remember the narrative up until this point, we will recall that Judah has examples of benefits of obedience as well as consequences of disobedience even within his own family. Yet, in a familiar pattern, Judah chooses the way of the flesh. Dive back in with me to verse 2. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son. And he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again, she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chizib when she bore him. What we find as we transition into verse 6 is that Judah's poor decision-making persists. Look with me at verse 6. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. 
But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Make a mental note of that because we're going to come back. Verse 8, then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. Verse 10, And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. We have zero commentary on Ur's wicked lifestyle. All we know is that his wickedness collides with the holiness of God, and the result is what? Death. Right? The result is death. Onan, Judah's middle son, then, let me paint a picture of what's going on here, rejects his responsibility to provide for Tamar, a son, deeming the personal cost to be too great. Right? It would have been expected that Onan would have filled this, this role left behind by his brother to bring about an offspring for Tamar and the family of his, his older, now very deceased brother Ur, right? That would have been the expectation. Only what we find is that Onan rejects this responsibility. Or let's say this. This is a more accurate way for us to understand what's going on here. He partially embraces his responsibility. All right, we see that he is willing to marry Tamar, right? That's indicated by way of their physical interaction as the story, as the story progresses. But he deems it too great of a cost to perpetuate the line, right? To continue a line, to provide Tamar with offspring. Why? Why would that have been a personal cost to, to own him? Well, because the child that would have uh, been, been birthed as a result of his obedient practice would have then become an heir. If the child becomes an heir, what does that mean for Onan? Well, it means that his sliver of the pie, we'll go back to Pac-Man with a tongue back here to double up the illustrative purposes, right? Uh, His portion of the pie becomes smaller at that point. That's what's going on here. So what is Moses drawing out for us? Man, Onan is selfish, right? He's unwilling to submit because he knows that his role or his, his benefit will decrease as a result. And so what does he encounter? Death as well. Whole bunch of death here early on in the book. Romans 6, Paul connects for us human wickedness and its consequence as he writes, for the wages of sin is, you are smart people, death. Right? The wages of sin is death. He implies here for us that God is perfectly within his right as the holy creator to judge as he does in Genesis 38 because he is. Let's be clear on what we see taking place here. Right? There's this realization that each one of us are brought into and that realization is as follows. Spiritually, sin separates us from God. Right? That's the reality. That is the, the, that is the weight 
of our sin, this, this separation that takes place. Physically, sin, death, separates us from one another. Here, we are provided a physical picture of our spiritual condition, right? You've got, you've got Ur and Tamar, wickedness, right, is, is, is bred and prevalent, overflowing in the life of Ur to the point that God says, death. And he's justified in doing so. As a result of this physical death, we observe separation, don't we? Onan steps in and he goes, well, I'll partially fulfill my role. You know what I mean? Like I'll, I'll care for you in certain ways, but I am not desiring to, to provide an heir that will provide for you long after perhaps my own death, right? There's selfishness, there's inward focus observable from Onan. What happens to him? Death. There's this physical separation that we see taking place within this family. Let's be clear here. That this physical separation that we observe taking place within this family paints and a beautifully accurate picture of the spiritual separation that exists between you and I left unto ourselves and our own devices and a holy God. Physically, we're observing separation in order that spiritually we might understand separation. This passage is tragic and it it should be. This family finds itself on the brink of ruin to the point that Judah retreats into full preservation mode. Look with me at verse 11. His eldest son has died. His middle son has died. And now Judah says to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, hey, just remain a widow in your father's house until Shelah, my son, grows up, right? Seeming to indicate that perhaps Shelah wasn't of age, right? To where it would, have been, it would have been even appropriate for him to step into this expected role. But, right, what initially, like, if we stop there, appears as, man, what a, what a responsible father. What, a, what an upright way to go about resolving this whole issue, right? Quickly, turns the other direction. Why does Judah respond the way that he does? For he feared that he would die like his brothers. I've already lost two sons. Right? If, 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 if Shelah next up to the plate stares at three coming right down the middle and he's called out as well, what am I left with? Like my family is totally, is totally broken. So Tamar went and she remained in her father's house. In verses 2 through 11, we see sin's ability to lay waste to human life. In verses 2 through 11, we see sin's ability to lay waste to human life. Right? I, don't, I don't care what you have or what you aspire for, sin will wreck you in any and every way. The remainder of this passage is evidence of this point. Our lives, right, are, are, are literally um, are riddled with illustrations and example of this very point. What do we know? We know that sexual sin will wreck you, that selfishness will wreck you. 
Like if you're if you're married here, you're especially familiar with that reality, right? That that selfishness will destroy you. It will destroy your relationships. It will destroy your marriage. It will destroy your friendships. Self-centeredness and selfishness wreak havoc and lay waste. Apathy will wreck you. Complacency will wreck you. Apathy and complacency right there alongside like sexual immorality and sin. Why focus? Why emphasize? Why emphasize these sins? And because these are, these are super subtle, right? They're, they're, they're super subtle, right? Very similar to, to, to bitterness, right? That, that breeds jealousy and, and hatred. We've already seen what happens in Genesis 37 in light of that, right? These, these subtle sins that if we don't take them seriously in our own lives, electing instead to focus on moral and ethical sin, that so dominates the conversation that ought to be observed and identified, then the reality is that we don't take God seriously. Right? And the reality in light of this is that if you don't, Actively, if we don't actively, if I don't actively and intentionally beat back these sins by the strength of the Spirit of God, there's a high probability that I'm already up to my neck in them. Do you understand what we're saying here? Subtle sin in our lives, sin like apathy, sin like complacency, sin like bitterness, sin like jealousy that will serve to, in the same way that we observe here from Genesis chapter 38, lay waste to our lives. We've got to wake up, okay? We've got to wake up and we've got to be aware of this and we've got to, by the power of the Spirit, fight back these sins, We've got to acknowledge their existence and we've got, to, we've got to acknowledge their presence. If we don't, then there's a real danger that we are up to our eyes already and we can't even see it. I love what Tozer had to say when he said this, that the complacency of Christians is the scandal of Christianity. The complacency of Christians is the scandal of Christianity. It rings, right? Like it's really like, oh, wow, that sounds like stellar, right? Like that's easy to remember. Like we've got a little, a little rhyming that takes place in there. It's short enough that I can commit it, share it, remember it, right? But I want us to consider what this means, Scandal, right? The complacency of the Christian being the scandal of Christianity. Think about the implications of Tozer's statement, right? That it's not creation, right? Observable here in the first few chapters of the book of Genesis. It's not, it's not multiplication or, or God's communication. It's not the incarnation. It's not crucifixion or resurrection, but the complacency of a people who express outwardly confidence in these truths who lack practical implication that is the scandal. That is incredible, and that is terrifying. Are you with me here? Man, the gospel says that Jesus rescues sinners, right? That Jesus rescues sinners. As we sit here this morning and we are confronted and we go, man, what happened? Like, what am I doing? Where am I? 
right? We fall back on this great and glorious truth that Jesus rescues sinners before sending the spirit to convict us and to heal us and to catapult us out to live the good works prepared for us beforehand. This is Paul's statement in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 in a paraphrase. Verse 12, we've got to continue. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, also died. So here we are. We're 12 verses in, and we are surrounded by death and dysfunction. How does this fit, <laughs> right? That's the question that we're continuing to come back to. Okay, I get it. But how does this fit into this story? How does Genesis 38 fit into the story of Joseph? How does it fit into the redemptive narrative as a whole? Continue on with me because it only gets stranger. Are you ready for more strange? It only gets stranger. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers. Okay, so, so his wife has died. An appropriate amount of time has passed. He has been comforted. He has mourned. And now it's time to, to set off. It's sheep Shearing season, right? He and his friend, Hurrah, the Adamalite, who we are introduced to earlier on in the story. Verse 13. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance of Enium, which is on the road to For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. She's clinging here to the hope of redemption and blessing. And at the same time, she's, she's hit with it, right? That whatever hope I had held out that... Judah might follow through on his word, it has now become clear that he is not. And so she devises this plan. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter in law. She said, Hey, what do you give me? To which he responds in verse 17, I'll send you a young goat from the flock. No, this is not going to work. If you give me a pledge until you send it, then we might begin to continue this conversation. He said, right, verse 18, I'm kind of paraphrasing and connecting some ideas here. What pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. These are all items that would have been unique to Judah, which helps us to understand her plan moving forward. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him, verse 19. Then she arose and went away and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood, verse 20. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adamalite, again surfacing in this story, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he couldn't find her. Why? Well, she had already, she had already departed. She'd peaced out. She's gone, right? She's even back in her other clothes. 
verse 21. So he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute? Who was that? Enium at the roadside. And they said, we have no idea what you're talking about, right? No cult prostitute has been here. So he returns to Judah and he says, I didn't find her. Also, the men of the place said that no cult prostitutes been hanging out, verse 23. And Judah replied, well, let her keep the things as her own or, or we shall be laughed at, right? We're not going to pursue this any further. In fact, we're just going to shelf it. This whole situation, we're putting it on a shelf up here and we're going to forget about it because this is potentially embarrassing, right? Like this, is, this is embarrassing. This is not a good look. And so let's just forget all about it. Verse 24, about three months later, though, right, this whole thing resurfaces when Judah is told that Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. Now, Judah's response here will blow your mind. (laughs) How does Judah respond? He says, bring her out and let her be burned. Wow, the level of of hypocrisy noticeable in verses 24 and 25. The story continues. Verse 25, as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law. Now, we see where this is going, right? Now, we know because Chelsea already read it for us. But even if you didn't, if we were reading this story for the first time, we've seen enough movies. We understand how narrative works, right? That we're showed the gun there in scene one so that in scene three, when it comes back, we understand how the flow and function of the story all comes together, right? What are we anticipating? Oh, man, <laughs> right? It's about to get real. Like, like how, how is all of this going to play out? She sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify who these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Who do they belong to? They belong to Judah, right? They belong to, to Judah. At which point the story has come full circle to a certain extent. And we're asking ourselves, okay, what is the resolution? Like what's going to happen? I've made this diagram up here to kind of help us today. Um, Remembering how to read narrative, right? When you read through narrative, which is where we find ourselves in the book of Genesis, how does it function? How does it flow? Well, you have an introduction and then there's this rising action where we've just been dialoguing through the story. We're recognizing what's taking place and what's happened. At which point you come to a climax, right? You come to this climactic moment in the narrative in which it's everything's at a head and you go, what's going to happen? How is all of this going to be resolved? And we come back to our other question, which is like, what is Genesis 38 doing here? Here we're at this moment, right? What's the climax? What's the question that we're asking ourselves? Well, it has to feed into the first two questions that I gave you in the beginning. Otherwise, that's really confusing, right? The, the, the climactic question is this, how is Judah going to respond? Judah's confronted with his sin. He's confronted with his immorality. How now will Judah respond? Verse 26, then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. 
when presented with this opportunity to deny, right? To, to run from, to flee from consequence, to go down with the sinking ship, right? Obviously, these items are unique to me. Obviously, these items are mine. I'm totally caught. I'm to- totally cornered, but I'm going to chew my own leg off to get out of this thing. Option one, Judah elects for option two, right? Which is to, to what? Well, to, to repent, to confess. We see this beautiful picture here. In verse 26 of, of, of repentance, true repentance. True repentance, which comes not simply by understanding the relational aspects of sin, but instead by understanding the nature of the one whom we are in relationship. The more we see God as as glorious, the more we see God as holy, the more we see sin as something to weep over, to repent from. Repentance, as we see here in light of this story, is less about feeling bad over behavior and more about feeling awe and delight towards God. And so here's the question, right? There's this encouragement towards consideration of sin in our own lives, especially those ones that are, that are so sneaky, right? Especially those ones that, that just creep in and serve to totally transform the way that we live our lives, only not in a positive way, right? There's almost this, this reverting back to as opposed to a, 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 a storming forward in confidence for the kingdom of God. Right? There's this, this, this encouragement by way of what we see through Judah's response to consider not just the bad behavior, but instead resting in awe and delight towards God. We, we see through this story that true repentance is a gift. And in this case, evidence of the power of God to move and work in time and space, unlike anyone or anything else to accomplish his will. Mission for his glory and our good in Joseph. Yes, we know, as we will see next week, we transition back into the story of Joseph in Genesis 39. And we will see God working in Joseph, right? Are you guys with me? Stay with me here at the end. We've got to tie this thing together, right? We're going to see God working in the life of Joseph to bring about his redemptive purposes. To what? To save a nation from starvation, preservation and growth, a nation developed through this, despite long odds and difficulty. God does it. He accomplishes his work. Only we're going to see somewhere around like like here, right? We're going to see this moment in which we are thrown back to Genesis 38, As Judah has been brought to this realization of his sin, we see a posture of humility, right? We see a posture of of true and genuine repentance, this admittance of wrong that will serve to transform his character. It'll, It'll transform his person so that as there is this intersection point later on in the narrative, we go, holy cow, that's what it was about. Right? That's why God does what he does there in Genesis 38 to, to confront Judah in his sin so that as we intersect later on, man, his plan and purpose continues 
In verses 27, 28, and 29, we see birth. We see new life. A story that begins with death culminates with with new life. This family on the edge of non-existence is preserved through Tamar, who is interestingly enough a Gentile who would be named along with four other women in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. You know who's not in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5? Women like Sarah and Rebecca and Leah and Rachel. And yet there is Tamar. Tamar's determination to have children of the promise leads to her clawing her way into the nation, securing Judah leading to the birth of King David and eventually King Jesus. This is a 10,000 foot. We've got to come out and we've got to see that God is working in this really beautiful and incredible way. This story teaches us that God's mission is bound up in growth. Right, that God's mission is bound up in growth, growth in his people through transformation observable here in the life of Judah Reminding us that God is always working in the lives of his people to shape them, to serve his design. And so the question that we have to, again, revisit in light of our time here in Genesis 38 is this. How do we respond when confronted with sin? How do we respond when confronted with sin? The the model that we see from Judah is, is honest repentance. Right, a, a multi-layered purpose of God, transformation in us. And later on, again, as we will see, I'm going to put this up here. I'm going to leave this transformation through us, transformation in us and transformation through us. It's not unique to this story, but it continues to, to work itself out in the world today. God works through this to mold us into the image of Jesus. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ. In response to this, man, we devote our lives to Jesus. We devote our lives to our King out of an overflow and gratitude for his devotion to us. And so I want us to consider one point as we come to the table today. In his book, Saturate, who I'm reading with my DNA group on Monday nights, Jeff Vanderstelt says this of the Lord's Supper. I made a note of this. This was from last week. And it's so timely given that we're moving into this time of table fellowship tonight through dinner groups at our mission communities. Jeff writes this. He says of the Lord's Supper. This is a common meal that we take together to remind us of a common provision that we share. What is the provision? Well, it's the, it's the broken body of our King. Right? It's the shed blood of our king. God's common provision that we share. We are one in need. Church, hear me. We are one in need this morning. Not only are we one in need, we are one in, in taking God's provision for our need. Thus, we have communion. Through this passage, we see broken communion, don't we? We see broken communion through death. We see a family that is laid desolate. In Christ, we see a renewed corporate communion. 
the cross of Jesus and his resurrection for our forgiveness. As a result, we repent. We come to the table and we repent. We come to the table and we celebrate. Death, death divides, right? Death, death separates. Only the gospel says that death does not have the final say. Right, but because Jesus died, this, this momentary separation, observable even through the work of Jesus upon the cross, momentarily separated from the Father, is not the end of the story. But that, that through the death of Christ, there is this reuniting. You and I, right, in and of ourselves, rebellious from the Father, reconciled through the sacrifice of of Jesus. Not only that, but we come here and we enjoy this communion, we enjoy this table fellowship, but we are flesh and blood and barring the return of our king, none of us get out of here alive. Okay? Not only are we reunited with God, but we find through this table fellowship a foreshadowing of our being reunited with one another around our king. It's truly incredible, and it has to inform the way that we live our lives, beginning with the way that we come to this table in just a moment. So let's consider these truths. Let's come with repentant hearts. Let's come with joy-filled hearts, enjoying this communion. This picture of the communion that God calls us into, brings us into through the sacrifice and resurrection of our King. What glorious news. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your work through the person of Jesus to rescue us, to ransom us, to redeem us, to bring us into friendship with you. Left unto ourselves, we are without hope. Our lives are laid waste and yet you lift them up. You transform us into the image of your beloved. Son, you love us and you care for us, you provide for us, and you are committed to using us to bring about the exaltation of your name and the expansion of your kingdom in our communities, in our homes, in our spheres of influence, in our places of work. May what we see this morning from Genesis 38 not be seen as an interruption to the narrative, but this pivotal part of our understanding our place in the narrative as we see it shape our understanding of Judah's place in the narrative. We love you and we are grateful that you are so patient and that you are so kind and you are so long-suffering. We deserve death. And yet as we come to this table, we are reminded that there is a, that there is a, 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 a debtor uh, who, uh, who is, is, takes his place upon the cross, not for his own sin, but for ours to save us and to, and to rescue us. And so help us to worship well as we come to the table and sing to you as we close our time. We love you and we're grateful, Father, for your love for us. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray, amen.